The verse we're reading from today is Luke 4:31 through 44. So Luke 4, 31 through 44, and he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come down to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown, himself, thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out in, into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue, and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. All right. Well, you know, we're, we've been in the Gospel of Luke for a number of months now, and every once in a while we need to kind of take a pause and, and figure out where have we been and what is going on right here. Luke chapter 4 that we're in did not just plop out of nowhere, but we're actually in this narrative, in this story, in this context. And let me kind of go back to remind you what the whole purpose of this letter is that Luke is writing. It's going to be on the screen. I'm just using the New Living Translation because it kind of paraphrases it in a way that makes it a little easier without me explaining. But look at Luke chapter 1, verse 1. This is why Luke wrote this letter. Many people have sent out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness report circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. What's the purpose of this letter, according to this one section right here? So that they can have certainty about what has been taught. And namely, not just taught about a, a random story, but about a person, namely Jesus to have certainty that Jesus is who he says he is. And so with that in the backdrop, that Luke is trying to help you understand that is Jesus really this coming Messiah? We go see in 
as the story goes on, Jesus is baptized. And at his baptism, he hears the father's voice of acceptance and pleasure. This is my beloved son. And then later on, you see Jesus is tempted. And that very identity is being tempted by the devil and threatened. And Jesus comes out as the faithful one. And then a few weeks ago, Pastor Daniel preached Luke 4, 18 through 19. It's going to be on the screen again. And I want to read it carefully. Again in the NLT. And then we'll go back to the ESV. But listen to the beauty. If, if you've been in church for a while, you may have heard this passage enough to where you roll your eyes and just kind of go in like white nose noise mode. But I want you to see how beautiful and precious this announcement is. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news or gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Isn't that so beautiful and hope-giving? And Jesus also, in the same passage, in a few verses from this one, Pastor Ross covered, he lets everyone know that this good news is not just for the Jews only, but for all peoples who would put their trust in him. No matter your background, no matter how tainted and stained your background is, this good news can be for you. And the Jews were not having that. They did not like that. They wanted it to be for them only, and so they tried to shove Jesus off a cliff. And when we think about this passage in Luke 4, 18 through 19, this, this is a big promise. This is a lofty, hopeful goal. And, and right now, we're in a very heavy political cycle where you're hearing, hearing a lot of big promises, aren't we? Uh, vote me president, and I will end this. I will do this. Everybody will get $6,000 per kid, right? All these different promises that can sound so good and so um, utopic. And yet, if you're at any age, you've probably been through enough cycles, presidential cycles, that we know that a lot of, it, of this is just talk, right? That the reality is that they can't actually bring about all these changes and all these dreams that they are promising. They overpromise and underdeliver. And so a question that this passage is begging is, is Jesus one of those? Is he like all the other politicians of that day in our day where he overpromises, but he can't deliver? He talks a good talk, but he cannot walk it out. He's promising all of these blessings, all of this freedom, all this liberation from his good kingdom. And yet the question that the text is begging is, can he really? Can he really? Will he? What, what will he do about cancer? What will he do about all the suffering in the world and all the wars? And, and what about coronavirus? And what about death? I mean, these are good questions you should be asking humbly about the text. Can Jesus do something about that? And so today what we're going to see is that in our passage today and even next week's passage is that Jesus is actually going to be living out Luke 14 through 18. 18 Luke 4, 18 through 19. He's going to be manifesting his kingdom and bringing these words into tangible illustrations in real life. Showing that he indeed can bring about these changes. He's not just a talker. He can do it. He's going to set free those who no one would think could be set free. He's going to bring healing to people who have diseases that are incurable. He is going to give us a teaser of what the kingdom of heaven would be like. 
He's going to give us a taste of what it would look like if Jesus reigned on the earth physically and he was the only king left. He's giving us a sample of his kingdom where there'll be no more sickness, no more brokenness, no more bondage. And so here's the main point if you're a a note taker, is that Jesus has the authority to bring his kingdom in every sphere. He has the authority to bring about his kingdom in every sphere of life. So on the screen, there's going to just be a quick outline if you want to kind of conceptualize this passage. It's, it's broken apart in three scenes that are primarily geographic. And it's going to be, the first scene is you're going to see him at the synagogue. In the second scene, we're going to see him at uh, his mother, uh, Simon's mother-in-law's house. And then finally, you're going to see them, him move on to other cities. Now let's look at the first scene, the authority shown at the synagogue. Look at Luke 4.31 with me. Be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. But if you do, I I really do hope you have your Bible. There's something really precious, and I'm going to highlight some other things in a minute. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. Just remember, he went down to Capernaum. He was in Nazareth, was about to be thrown off a cliff, and then he moves down to, to, to Capernaum. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Now, if you have your Bible and you feel comfortable writing in the Bible, you could underline or circle or highlight the word authority, and if you'd like, you could do a quick scan to see every other time this word authority is repeated in this section, because that is the key theme that we're going to see in this section, is the word authority. Also, the other key word you're going to see repeated is the word word. Now, this is important. I'm I'm not trying to nerd out for you just because it's fun to do or because I'm trying to show off. This is essential to understanding this text. There's going to be three kinds of authorities that you're going to see manifested in this text through Jesus on the screen. Authority over truth. I'm going to explain what that means because it's going to sound funny. Authority over demons and authority over sickness. Three spheres that are untamable by man. That man, only God, has control over and authority over. And all of these realms, all of these dominions, all of these spheres, Jesus is going to exercise his authority with just a word. Just a word. Future and singing. Those are some pipes there. Please note that every one of these spheres are not spheres that man has had Luck in conquering. These are all spheres that man feels under, that can't do anything about. Now let's look at this first authority manifested teaching or truth. Verse 32. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Now let me make a comment about the background in this day of what Jesus was what he was compared to his, his predecessors and his contemporaries. So in that day, rabbis would go about and they would preach and teach and they would quote the Torah. And they would also, whenever they would make an interpretation, they would quote other rabbis or other schools of thought that represent and support their interpretation. 
And so for them to make a point, they would have to appeal to not only God's word, the Torah, they would also appeal to other schools to say, hey, listen, I'm legit, I'm true, I'm telling you something that's right because of these other people agree with me. However, Jesus is not doing that here. He's on a whole other level in his authority. He's not appealing to authority, he is the authority. Now, let me give you an example of how that would flesh out. I, I talked to, our, to the elders about this, and they kind of helped me think through this. Imagine the difference between hearing a story from someone through me versus them telling you. So, do you guys know who Joni or Johnny Erickson Tata is? Now, if you don't know who she is, she is a uh, well-known Christian author and teacher, and she is so precious, but at a young age... She had a diving accident that paralyzed her from the neck down. And so she's been in a wheelchair for decades. And so if she ever signs one of her books for you, she does it with her mouth, with a pen in her mouth, and so forth. And I, I could probably find one of her stories from her life, and, and with all of my God-given rhetoric powers, I could share it in a way that would probably move you at some level. But wouldn't it be wholly different if we rolled her up on that ramp up here and she was here in the flesh sharing about her sufferings and how Christ has met her? Would that not be wholly different hearing it from the source than me, a second-hander, explaining about her experience? Would you guys feel the difference? And, and that is a little bit of kind of what we're getting at with Jesus. His authority is one that's not derivative authority. It's, he's not a second-hander. For me, I have authority because I'm preaching God's word, which is the authority. But Jesus, if you know the Bible, know John chapter 1, he is the word. He is self-authenticating. He is the authority. He's not saying, well, hey, there's this outside authority that proves that what I'm saying is true. It's, it's affirming. No, no, he is, and he needs no other affirmation. And so when he's teaching, he has authority over his teaching, unlike anybody in his day. Now, let's see the second kind of authority in this passage. Authority over demons. Authority over demons. And I know that's a crazy topic, so let's talk about it real quick. When it comes to spiritual forces in the darkness, uh, uh, spiritual forces of darkness in the Bible, we see that the Bible identifies this, this guy named Satan or Lucifer. His, his name can kind of vary depending on the context, the accuser. And he's a leader of darkness, and there's a bunch of other angels who also rebelled with him, um, and those are called demons. There's a lot more mystery there, and I'm not giving you justice of the whole picture, but if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, that, that's kind of what we're uh, against in this world as well with our own broken flesh in the world. Now, Luke shows us that demons can have influence over Christians at some level. They can mess with us at some level. And for those who are not Christians, they can increasingly take over to where what we see in this passage is this man, the technical term would be called demonized, where he is out of control. There's a, some people call it demon possession. That's not always the best terminology, but there's, this guy is demonized. And in the ancient world, when someone was demonized, it, they, they, they felt a sense of awe and power about this person who had this demon. It wasn't like, oh, he just has a demon. We got this. No, it'd be a sense of like, uh, this, 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 this person is otherworldly. 
They have a power that we're unfamiliar with that we can't conquer, and there's a sense of timidity and fear about anyone who would have a demon. Now let's look at this demon respond to Jesus while he's teaching. Luke 4:34. Ha! What have you do to what do you do to with a oh my goodness, help, help me, Lord. See, I, I'm not good at quoting demons. All right, that, that's what it is. Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, note he says this. What have you to do with us? Us? Whoa. Maybe multiple demons in this guy, like we've seen before. Or perhaps he's speaking on behalf of the demon world and saying, hey, well, you're messing with all of us. Kind of in a corporate sense, he's representing. We're not really sure what's going on here. But, but note this. Um, we need to talk about the demon's recognition of Jesus' identity. There's a lot here, and we're going to actually tie it at the very end in the conclusion of the message, but let's talk about some of these things. One of the big themes in Luke is affirming the identity of Jesus. And right now, we're, he's, his identity is being affirmed by demons. His identity a few chapters ago was affirmed by the Father, now it's being affirmed by demons. But what are they actually affirming? Let's look at this. He says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Luke is a historian, so he loves giving you specific details about people. He doesn't just like to make things just kind of float out there. He's, he's grounding Jesus' identity from a geographical place, showing that he's a real person. Have you come to destroy us? Note that he just jumps right to the end. See, despite the power that demons actually have in this world, they are fighting a losing battle. And they know it. And so as freaky as demons can be, and if you watch any horror movies, it can terrify us. Know that they're, win they're fighting a losing battle. And they do not have authority and they know it. Let me remind you of the end. Revelation 20 verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Another passage would make clear that the, the demons would be joining Satan also in this situation. And so this is something that I just want to remind us here that al although they can be freaky and otherworldly, they have been dismantled. And their greatest power has been dismantled on the cross. And what Jesus is doing right here is foreshadowing what is to come. Notice what they call him. He said, I know you are the Holy One of God. The Holy One of God. The Holy One of God is a special title. It's connected to the fact that Jesus is divine Son of God. And he's also set apart. And there's a really sweet Old Testament connection that we're going to share about later. But, but let, me, let me make this note. Kind of an obvious note. But it's one thing for your friends and family to affirm your identity. It's another thing to be at a whole other level of authority that your, even your enemies give you respect. You know what I'm saying? It's like one thing for like, well, it's just you, mom. Of course you're going to say that. But it's even your worst enemies cannot help but bow and say, you are who you are. I think that's sweet. Let's see how Jesus responds to this demon in verse 35. When Jesus rebukes him, but Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent, come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him out in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. If you look at ancient records of exorcisms, 
or if you've seen popular adaptations in movies, it's not like this, right? It's, there's this long, drawn-out process with all these rituals and all these incantations. And if you would read some of the things that I've read from ancient times, it was very long and exhaustive and not guaranteed. And yet, what does Jesus do here? Does he wrestle with the demon? Does he go back and forth and tussling and people are like, come on, Jesus, you can do it. And they're like, oh, no, he's losing, right? Let's go. No, no. Out. And it's gone. He doesn't say, in the name of God. He kind of says, in the name of me. Again, he, he's not appealing to authority. He is the authority. He has this self-attesting authority because he is God so that he can just say, go, and he listen, listens. In the words of Martin Luther's famous hymn that we kinda, I quoted last time I preached, one little word shall fell him. I love it. And what does this teach us? Is Jesus is indeed in a battle against these demons, but it's not even a match. There, there's this idea, idea of something called dualism, which has this idea that there's just the great power of, of darkness and the great power of God, and they're in this divine, cosmic, um, their battle, their horns are locked, and we'll see who wins. But this is not like that. This battle is already won. Have you guys ever heard this phrase? It's from a, it's an old movie, but never bring a knife to a gunfight. You guys ever heard that? Right? Jesus is coming with a tank, and, they're bring, and, and the demons are bringing super soakers. Right? This is not even a contest. Jesus speaks one word, and they flee, and he's able to do it in a way to, to maintain this man's safety also, for the man is thrown down, and yet he is not harmed. Jesus has ultimate authority over these demons now let's look at the response of the people this is not a common thing look at verse 36 and they were all amazed notice that word amazed was repeated earlier and they said to one another what is this word remember that word word for with authority you guys remember that word in power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out and reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region there's that word again, authority and word. Remember verse 32, if you have your Bible open? Look at verse 32. They were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. But he doesn't just have authority over his word to say nice things and true things. He has authority over demonic forces in whom no one had authority over. This is so unheard of. That word is spreading quickly and going out about this man who exercises and casts out demons with just a word. And as we move on to scene two, we're going to see the last type of authority of Jesus. But also, as we see his authority manifested in healing over uh, sickness, his authority over sickness, we're also going to see the compassion of Christ also. So let's look at scene two. Compassion at Simon's house, or Simon's mother-in-law. Sorry, Simon's house. Look at verse 38. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now... This is why we know that Peter was married. If you guys are unfamiliar with the Bible, Simon is another name for Peter. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Can we marvel again at the power of Jesus here? He doesn't wrestle with the fever. He doesn't do some sort of chant and some sort of like 
rain dance around her, hoping something would happen. He rebukes the fever, and it goes just like he rebuked the demon, and the demon goes. This is some authority that we've never seen before. And the text gives a sense that this fever is very bad, that this term high fever is not just like, oh, she had a really bad headache. Like, this fever could put her to death. And remember, fevers aren't a thing in themselves. Fevers represent something deeper that's wrong, right? And so this virus is bowing at the very words of Jesus. This virus has to bow to Jesus' words. That's good news for us right now. Because there is a virus right now that's causing much fear in our world. And that virus, too, bows at Jesus' word. Notice there was no process. This is a true miracle. This isn't, he prayed for her, and then as the days went on, she started to get better. No, it was instantaneous where she got up and she was able to serve. And, I, and I, my sense is that she served with joy and gratitude. Again, Jesus has authority to heal, but he does not appeal to another's authority. He has authority within himself. And from that, he's able to pray and bring healing. He is the creator of the universe, and he upholds everything, and he can command every molecule in her body to be aligned with the original created hope and the created design. But perhaps you're a skeptic. You're saying, oh, maybe Jesus got lucky. We know the power of placebo effect, and if you pray for enough people with enough faith and get them riled up that they could feel better, and, and there's something powerful about that that can actually change the physiology of someone, and they can be better. Perhaps if you're a skeptic here and you're wondering, maybe Jesus just got lucky here. Well, let's look at the next verse, which will remove all doubt. Look at verse 40. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought him them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Now let's try to understand what's going on here. Imagine a long day preaching at the synagogue. Then you go home and the host's home has a very sick woman. You bring healing to that woman. And as you recline at table or recline at the end of the day, trying to rest from a hard day's work of ministry, and the sun goes down, all of a sudden you hear commotion outside of your doors. And there's a throng, a mass of people needing healing. Now, please note that this is not some orderly hospital where everyone's standing in order line and they have their own little ticket or they all signed in. Imagine a horde of people who are desperate to hear that there's someone here who has authority to bring healing and to cast out demons, and so they are frantic, they are desperate, they are crazy. That's the kind of that's the kind of scene you should imagine. Jesus walking out and there's people everywhere going bananas for him, grabbing him. That's the kind of scene you should have. Not a nice line. And note, what does Jesus do? He stays up and he heals various diseases just with his words. He's healing them and demons are fleeing and, and people are being set free. Look at the power here. Not just a fever, not just headaches, various diseases. And if you read throughout the Gospels, you see Jesus heals everything from paralytics to the lepers, 
to, to, to situations that doctors can't even understand with the, uh, the flowing of blood, all these kinds of uncurable situations in that day, Jesus is able to heal. There's nothing too hard for him. It, there was never a time where someone came up and Jesus was like, whoa, yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe another day. There was nothing too hard for him. Nothing too small. There's, there's nothing that changes and threatens him or intimidates him. Jesus is Lord over every disease and every problem. There's no cancer that scares him. Coronavirus got nothing on him. Nothing. And this should increase our faith in Christ and yet also may be a gentle rebuke for some of us who have been living in fear the last few weeks. Perhaps you are full of fear and anxiety because of all the news reports. And maybe you need to just give that to the Lord. Hey, Jesus, I, I may be more intimidated and more impressed by the power of coronavirus than you are, than I am with you. Just be honest with him. I fear disease. I fear the brokenness of the body more than I fear you, God. And in this age that is still under the curse of the fall, God sometimes decides in his delight that it would be good to give us a glimpse of his kingdom where there's no sickness. And he brings healing. And then sometimes, like the case for me right now, I've been sick for the last four or five days. God finds it good to not bring healing yet. And we don't know always the reasons why God does what he does. But I, I want to highlight this. We can trust his plans and we can trust his heart. We can trust his plans, and we can trust his heart. You can take this to the bank, what I'm about to say. We can trust his plans because we know that Jesus is sovereign, and because of a work, the work he's done on the cross, we know that it is guaranteed that one day every sig single sickness that ails us will be healed. Period. Every issue, every issue that befuddles scientists and medical doctors, everything will be healed one day. Jesus will make all things new in this new heavens, new earth, and we can take confident, confidence that he is the one who's faithful to bring that to, to pass, and that will happen in his good timing and sovereignty. And whenever we see Jesus' miracles throughout the Bible and in miracles in our life throughout the church, we can give a glimpse of what it will be like when Jesus comes back. But two, we could also trust his heart. We know that Jesus is not some passive, deistic observer who just sees us suffering and is like, hey, toughen it up. My grace is enough. Like he, He's not this passive participant, but he's one who took on flesh and came in our place and suffered like we do. And yet, it was not like we do because the deck was stacked against him and he suffered in ways that he ought not to have been suffered. All of us can look at our life and say, oh, I deserve that suffering. Oh, I, I, I really screwed that up. He never, ever did a single thing wrong and yet suffered as if all he ever did was wrong. And the deck was stacked against him, so Jesus took on flesh and he suffered the life, um, every ailment of, of this age in some way. He can sympathize. He can commiserate with us. He's not one who's standing and says, oh, I don't know what that's like. I've read some reports. No, he knows exactly what it's like to suffer. And so we can trust his heart because no matter what God is doing in his designs, he's playing by the same rules. Jesus takes our place and he plays by the same rules that he asks all of us to play. He's not playing some sick game with us, but we can trust his heart. 
even though we don't always understand. And I want to say that's the beauty and the insanity of the gospel, friends, family, visitors, is that in the gospel, Jesus suffered on the cross for our sins as if all he ever did was wrong. He suffered on the cross like he did every single thing that you and I did that we regret and want to bury in our past. He was treated on the cross as if he did those very things. Simultaneously, everyone who put their hope in him, all of their past is heaped upon Jesus, and Jesus suffers in our place who trust in him. And so Jesus' death on the cross opens up the door and path so that we can have peace with God. So I just want to say, if you don't know Christ and you're not trusting in him and you, he is not your authority, then you do not have peace with God. And yet you can have peace with God. Jesus made a way. So if you put your trust in him, you repent and turn from your sins and get baptized, he will. He will receive you. And you will get to enjoy this this. Heaven that we're going to experience with no sickness, no pain, no demonic forces. And so if that's you, please come talk to us. We want to talk to you more about what it means to follow Jesus. If you are not secure in your acceptance in Christ, please let us know. Now, let's look at verse 42 as we, we kind of bring things to an end. And when it was day, we're going to see his compassion a little more. He departed and went to a desolate place. Let's just stop there right there. When it was day. When it was day. And if you look at the parallel Mark account, it looks like Jesus woke up really early in the morning, but both accounts, if you look at them side by side, that's Mark 1 if you're taking notes, if you look at them side by side, Jesus was up almost all night just healing people. He, would, he didn't just come out and was like, oh man, this is going to take forever. Everyone's healed. Good night, guys. I'll be back next week. You know, it was just a, he was laboring touching those that no one else would touch, getting their junk all over him as they're grabbing him, trying to find healing. If they would just touch his garments, they, they were all over him, and he's up all night, and at the end of it, he gets up to be with the Father. And I just find his compassion there. It, it, it's not as explicit, but if you look in between the lines, you can see the compassion of Christ that he would stay up, and he'd heal every single person. Now, I'm not going to bed until everyone's touched. Jesus is amazing. And what does Jesus do after all that ministry? He departed and went to a desolate place. Verse 42 again. And the people sought him and came to him and interrupted his quiet time and would have kept him from leaving them. At the end of all this ministry, he doesn't stay in bed and linger because he deserves it. He gets up and he goes to be with the Father. And I say that he's praying because... Luke 5, 16 says this, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And if you look at all the other times in the Gospels where it talks about him going to desolate places, he's praying. It doesn't say that explicitly here, but it's a very, very safe assumption that that's what he's doing. That's why he's alone. He's not isolating himself. He's trying to be with the Father. He's seeking solitude. Solitude is very different from isolation. Isolation is deeply unhealthy. Solitude is deeply healthy and needed. And at the end of all this craziness, he goes to be with his father. And what happens in that moment? He gets clarity on his identity and his purpose. See, what were the people trying to do when they find, found him? They were trying to get him to do what? Stay. Stay here. 
There's more to be done. I have a cousin. He didn't come last night. They're trying to keep him to stay. But Jesus, as he's with the Father, he gets clarity on why he's there. What's his clarity? What, what is he doing here? I must preach the good news. This is verse 43. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. You would think that he would stay because there's a need, right? And if you grow in Christ, one of the biggest lessons you'll have to learn is just because there's a need doesn't mean you need to meet it. And sometimes you need to know your identity and hear from the Father clearly what God, what assignment he has for you. And this tells us a lot about Jesus' kingdom and his purpose and why he was there for his first coming. See, this purpose he highlights, what does he say? He says that... Um, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. That's, that's very telling. See, Jesus' first coming on the earth wasn't to just merely address physical needs. If that was the case, if that was his primary reason why he was there, is that why he would just do a healing crusade, a healing tour. He would get a caravan of camels and chariots and just line up the sick people and he just walked by you know like he would do something like that if that was his primary purpose so but but it wasn't his primary purpose see the healings and the miracles were there to attest of the reality of his words and his kingdom it gave you a glimpse that what he's saying was trustworthy and true and that this is a glimpse of what it will be like one day but he could not just come address the physical needs unless he dealt with the greatest need the need of the heart the need to be reconciled with god you can give a man a, a piece of bread, but if he's walking towards a valley, it will do him no good. He may have a full belly, but he will have an achy body as he falls to his death, right? Like, he is addressing the greatest need, and that's why he is saying, hey, i got to move on and preach the gospel, the good news of this kingdom. And so to bring this home for us, we too are called to dismantle the works of Satan, just like he did. But it's different for us because we're not dying for anyone on the cross. We don't have to get on the cross like Jesus did. Um, but how do we partner, let me ask you this, how do we partner with Jesus to dismantle the works of Satan on this earth? Now, right now, like tomorrow, this week, how do we partner with him? Well, you will destroy the works of Satan in this world by giving a glimpse of his kingdom and all the good things that God has called us to do through the scriptures. This means... Hear me carefully. Christians will and must care about the whole person in society. Will and must care. We must care about healthy families. And we must care about orphans. We must care about the unborn. We must care about mental illness and abuse and injustice and prejudice and all of these different ailments that come from the fall and the curse of this world, everything that the kingdom will bring. However, we especially dismantle the works of Satan by preaching the gospel, by making disciples. This is the especially what we're called to. Now, it's very important for me to say that because the word especial is, is a special word because it doesn't say either or. It's both and and especially preaching. And this is a big issue right now in our culture, and especially in a lot of churches, where it's like social justice or the gospel. And it depends on what you mean by social justice, but the Bible would say yes. 
He said that if you truly have been transformed by the gospel and the spirit of God is in you, it's going to flow through mercy and ministry of mercy to others. And you're going to care about the whole person. And yet we know that the greatest suffering is not just physical suffering or mental suffering, but it's eternal suffering. we got to address the heart. So I'm grateful for what Queen shared today and what that MC is doing and many of us are doing in our day-to-day life. And so Jesus has called us to dismantle the works of Satan primarily through preaching of the gospel, but also demonstrating the gospel in our life and the way we care for orphans and the way we care for our neighbors and so forth. So Jesus calls us to preach and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus' kingdom. Now, I want to end by just, just, just enjoying Jesus and his power. Let's go back to Satan's Um, not Satan, but the demon's affirmation of Jesus. In verse 34, there's a scholar, Lucan scholar named James Edwards, not Jonathan Edwards, um, but James Edwards, that makes a really fascinating point that I just want to share with you that I think would just be so sweet to end on. Luke 4, 34, at the end of the passage, he says, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, if you know your Bible well, do you know the only other person in the Bible that's called Holy One of God? Holy of God. Does anyone know? I didn't know. (laughs) So I'm just kind of setting you up. Who would you guess? You'd probably think of some great prophet, right? But the only person in the Bible called Holy of God is Samson. Samson. Of all people, Samson. Now, let me show you a passage real quick. Judges 16, 17. I, I promise all this has a purpose. I'm not just doing this to nerd out. Show you that I went to school. And he told her all his heart, he's talking to Delilah, and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God. This word Nazarite in Hebrew is saying consecrated or holy to God. Now, real quick moment uh, aside, the primary, it seems, text that the disciples and the early followers of Jesus used of the Old Testament was actually not the Hebrew scriptures, but the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, okay? And if you look at the Greek translation of Nazareth to God, it's actually holy of God. Now, why do I share all this? This word Nazareth means something. Who, where did Jesus come from? Nazareth. And Nazarite vow was just a special vow for special people to be set apart for God. And so, when we think about Samson's life, what, was, what did he do? Well, Samson was a judge, empowered by the Spirit to set captives free. Throughout his life, he imperfectly but regularly dismantled the strongholds of the Philistines throughout the Israelite land. Whenever they would bound him with some sort of rope or material, he would just snap them off by the power of the Spirit. He would tear down and beat entire armies with the jawbone of a donkey. He was unstoppable, but yet he had a big issue, right? Because you guys know he had a weak spot for women. He had a weak spot for holiness, actually. He was deeply broken. And so ultimately, he could not liberate his people physically or spiritually. He failed. So why do I share this tie with Samson? What, what do you think Luke is trying to do here for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear? I think what he's saying is that Jesus is the true and better Samson. 
He's the Samson that is going to demolish all all the activities of Satan in the land. And yet he does not have a problem with women. Jesus doesn't have a problem with being pure and holy. In fact, as we saw early in Luke chapter 4, that he is faithful through every test. That you can shake him up and put him in the most tempting situations, and throughout it all, he will still be found pure and faithful. And Jesus is going to dismantle, and he's already dismantling every work of Satan in the land, and he's giving us a foretaste of what he will do in the age to come. God is going to heal every trauma every heartbreak, every brokenness, and Jesus is a faithful one to bring it about. Amen? We can put our hope in this. Because really, honestly, when you think about it, we're giving our whole life to this Jesus. Is he who he says he is, and is he trustworthy? And I would say this text shows us, yes, yes, he is. He is. He's trustworthy, he's faithful, and he's going to bring about all this change our hearts long for now and in the coming age fully. Amen? All right, let's pray. Jesus, you know that my conversations with you this week have been so hard because I know that no matter what I say, I cannot do justice to how good you are. I cannot preach. Even if you gave me the tongue of an angel, I could not preach in a way that, that magnifies and highlights your worth and your authority in a way that fits you. I can't. So I pray now that you would let this word deeply massage into our lives and fill us with hope and fresh faith in your authority over every sphere of life. If there's anyone in here who is is terrified because of the coronavirus or terrified because of issues in the bank or at work or issues in the family and afraid of that, Lord, would you fill them with fresh confidence and hope that you're the one who has authority over every sphere? Strengthen us right now. In Jesus' name we pray. And Father, if there's anything that I said that was off, would you correct me? But everything that was true, let it transform our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.